This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism, that in your Son we are given divine life, we are given grace and power to live the Christian life. And we pray that you would help us as we meditate upon that reality and as we celebrate it this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning we are celebrating the feast of the baptism of our Lord. And historically, this is also a day on which the church, appropriately enough, celebrates baptisms. So this morning we have an opportunity to consider why Christ was baptized and to consider what the scriptures tell us about baptism. And as we open the scriptures on baptism, we are led to look at the place that water, that element itself, has in the scope of God's rescue of the world that he created. And we discover that God so constituted the properties of this element in his creation that it could, in one instance, be life-giving, giving relief to parched lips or removing dirt from the body. Or... It can be mysterious, deep, churning, thunderous, threatening, as in the depths of the ocean, which always symbolized chaos and death to the Israelites, or in the rushing torrents of a flood. Water has all of these different resonances, and Scripture sets forth the mystery of baptism by meditating deeply upon them. God uses the stuff of his creation to do his mighty work to heal his creation. We need to understand baptism, therefore, as at once comforting and terrifying, because God created water to be both comforting and terrifying. The life he invites us into in baptism is simultaneously comforting and terrifying. When we turn to our gospel passage from Luke this morning, we get this look at the ministry of John the baptizer. John is a mighty figure, the greatest of the formidable prophets that have come from God. John announces the coming of a new age, the age of the Messiah. The former things have come to pass and new things are proclaimed. He is the one of whom Isaiah says, Behold, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John comes preparing the way of the Lord with a message of austerity. It's a message of asceticism, a message of repentance. That's the good news that John brings. It's a vision of a new age that is a bracing one. When the Messiah comes, he will come with his winnowing fork in his hand. He will gather the wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn up with unending fire. That is... Everything that is pure, the Messiah will sift and retain, and everything impure, he will utterly destroy. It's a bracing vision. John comes baptizing with water, and the meaning of this baptism is repentance. It's a baptism of sorrow and of tears, that the people of God have rebelled against God and become his enemies. But John's message is not just repent. It's also that a mightier one than himself is coming, who has a mightier baptism with which to baptize. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a fire. This message that a mightier one with a mightier baptism is coming is part of John's proclamation of the new age. 
And when Jesus comes and receives baptism at John's hands, it's actually the first light of the dawn of this new age. How do we know that? We know it because this remarkable thing happens when Jesus is baptized. When Jesus is baptized, it is accompanied by a fresh and fuller revelation of who God is. We learn here in this passage that the God of Israel does not just love his people with a covenant love. We learn that at the deepest level of his being, he is a perfect relationship of love. As Christians have meditated on this passage throughout history, we have come to see that what it means is that to be God is to be self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love. God is love. That is what we learn in this passage. The words of St. Hilary in the 4th century is that although our God is one, not two or three gods, but one God, he is not a solitary God. That's maybe the most felicitous statement of Trinitarian theology in the whole history of Christianity. Our God is one, but he is not solitary. And this God who created everything that is and is rescuing everything that is, is a God who delights and rejoices in eternal, harmonious, effervescent communion. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, the father says, proclaiming what has been true from the foundations of the world. There is no lack or need in God because God is forever father, son, and Holy Spirit. God creates not because he is lonely, but because the eternal communion shared between these three that are also one is so glorious that it must be shared. It overflows from the superabundance of that goodness. And when the human beings that he created in his image fell away from him through sin, he did not think that the cost of rescuing us was too great. He left the glory and the riches that were his by right for all eternity, and he came to save us. He was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, members of his family. That's what the book of Hebrews says. As Rowan Williams powerfully says it, he was willing to enter the neighborhood of chaos for our sake so that we could once more be partakers of his divine nature. When Jesus is baptized, it is the first light of the dawn of this new age. And his baptism changes the meaning of the baptism that he received. When Christ is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, he changes forever what it means to be baptized. This is no longer just a baptism that expresses sorrow, the pang of knowing that we have fallen short of the glory of God and are worthy of destruction. When Jesus is baptized, it becomes a baptism of joy because Christ is remaking and refashioning the people of God through baptism. He is knitting us together. He is healing the tattered and rended fabric of humanity in a body that is united in the praise of the living God. As the Holy Spirit falls upon him, so it also falls on everyone who belongs to him and to his body in baptism. If we want to know, we want to understand what this baptism of Jesus means, we have to train our attention on the meaning of the psalm that we read together today. Our lectionary puts that psalm together with this gospel passage and this passage from Acts because we are meant to understand Jesus and what he is, who he is, as the completion, the fulfillment of who David was supposed to be. 
Everything that David was meant to be for Israel, everything that he represents, all of the hope that he represents, Jesus fulfills. In the ancient world, the king was the only indispensable member of the nation. And that's not just because the king was the representative of the people, but also because the king, in some sense, summed up the essence or the spirit of a people. In some way, that's kind of hard for us to understand, those of us who are democratically inclined, that is. Whatever David was, Israel also was. And what David did, Israel also did. David is what some have called the corporate personality of Israel. There was a a much stronger sense of the necessity of corporate solidarity in the scriptures than we have today. It's not actually because we don't long for that corporate solidarity, but actually we have trouble believing that it's possible. We've been so disappointed by our institutions, by our leaders. Our institutions and our leaders have failed us badly. I mean, we long to have this sense of solidarity, this sense of belonging to something that's bigger than ourselves, being part of a story and a drama that's greater than ourselves, but we're afraid, and I think with good reason, to entrust ourselves to something like that. But we're made for that. That's our problem. We're made for that, and we don't flourish when we can't give ourselves to it. When our institutions are as sick as ours are right now, it's hard to trust. But that is why Jesus came. When Israel's kings failed publicly, as David did with Bathsheba and Uriah, it was a terrible calamity. Everybody recognized it. If David fell, it was not just David failing. Instead, he drugged the whole people of God with him into that failure. Israel was the elected people of God. And so for Israel to fall into sinfulness and to fall prey to the power of death was a great calamity. Corporately, Israel called God our Father. They were the adopted and elected people of God. And David uniquely represents the spirit or essence of Israel. He alone in Israel could call God my Father. Look at our psalm today. Verse 26, it says, He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, my rock, and my Savior. And likewise, only of David does God say, You are my Son. It's right there in Psalm 2-7. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. In just the same sense of corporate representation, Jesus is the new David. On behalf of Israel, he is able to call God my Father. Like David in our psalm, he is anointed for his mission with power here in his baptism. Our reading from Acts says that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power for this specific mission, that he would go around doing good and healing people who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And in Luke chapter 4, he will open that scroll from Isaiah and he will read powerfully, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. The Holy Spirit falls upon him in this passage with this anointing like a dove. And he is the Son of God. The voice comes from heaven to say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus is greater than David. Not only does Jesus sum up and represent Israel, not only does he fulfill Israel's vocation perfectly, not only is he the divine son by being the captain of God's people, but he is the God of Israel come in the flesh. 
He is the Son of God, not just because He is God's representative of His elect people, but because He is the eternal Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Whereas Israel is the elected people of God among the nations by adoption, God is the natural, eternal Son of God. Just as the people of Israel were able to call God our Father, so we can also pray our Father. But our Father is much more powerful because by baptism, we belong to the Holy Trinity. We are made partakers of the divine nature. That's what Second Peter proclaims boldly to us. And I urge you to go and look at how the Holy Scriptures describe baptism, actually. Go and make a study of all the baptism passages in the New Testament. Every passage proclaims this profound realism, something real, genuine, great power and grace is being poured out upon us in this rite. The Holy Spirit is really given to us. It really falls on us just as it fell on Christ in his baptism. In Romans, Paul tells us that we're plunged into Christ's death in our baptism and that we are raised to new and unending life in him. We are baptized so that his divine life, his divine power might course through our veins. Our baptism is therefore this really deeply comforting reality. It is how we come to belong to Christ. He really gives his divine life in it. We are really made into his holy people. We are set apart from the world and given new identities as heirs with Christ. That's profound and that is comforting. But this reality is also deeply disturbing. It is terrifying, like the waters of the deep. Baptism is a rite which demands that we die to our own desires and hopes and expectations for how our lives are going to go. As Paul says, if you are Christ, if you are baptized, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your bodies. What he's saying is, if you're Christ, prepare to suffer for his name. He says in Romans 8.17 that the baptized are co-heirs together with Christ if indeed we have suffered with him. It's a conditional. If indeed we have suffered with him. The early church understood this Pauline conviction. The word sacrament, which is our word for baptism in the Eucharist, comes from the Latin word sacramentum. The sacramentum was the oath of allegiance to Caesar that the centurions would swear when they entered the the Roman army. If you swore the sacramentum, then you belonged body and soul to Caesar. And every centurion was marked with a tattoo when they swore this sacramentum. Hey, you're the property of somebody else now. And the early Christians took this image and they applied it to their baptism. When we take the sacramentum of Christ, when we swear this oath of allegiance to him, when we are marked in baptism, we are permanently marked as his own. Our baptism is like a tattoo that marks us for all eternity as Christ's own. We may desert the army of Christ. We may apostatize from the faith, but we can never escape him. We will be Christ haunted for eternity if we try to do that. We belong to him whether we like it or not in baptism. And we will stand before him to make an account of whether we represented him in this or not. One of my favorite Christian colleagues comes immediately after we baptized, infants or adults. We make the sign of the cross over the baptized and we pray, receive the sign of the cross 
as a token of your new life in Christ, in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue his faithful soldier and servant to the end of his days. We must not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified because he was not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters and to bring us by adoption into his family as children of God. We can hardly do better than this collect in describing the shape of the Christian life. If we are baptized, we are no longer our own. We are bought with a price by Christ in order to glorify God in our bodies. Everything that I have said is a shared conviction of the early church. It is truly something of which it can be said that it has been believed always, everywhere, and by all. And yet I've been brought to my convictions on baptism by meditating upon the scriptures about baptism, not simply by the testimony of the early church. And so I want to end by addressing an objection to the realism of baptism that I had, and maybe it's on your hearts this morning too, which is that baptism articulated in this way can seem kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Is that truly what the New Testament teaches? Especially since the New Testament also tells us that we must be converted. If we're baptized, does it mean that we have a free pass to heaven when we die and into the resurrection, however we have lived and whatever we have believed? The answer is and has always been for every fellowship in the body of Christ, no. Christ will not allow the honor that he bestows upon us in baptism to be taken for granted. In baptism, we are given divine life and we're set apart for a very specific purpose, which is to commune with God to enjoy him and to glorify him with our lives forever. Baptism is an invitation to live according to a different story than the world, to make the story of the gospel our heart story, the story we orient our lives around, to make this divine drama the drama of our lives. It's an invitation to know that story so well that we can not just recite it, but that we can live it, that we've tasted its goodness, its righteousness, its holiness. It is an invitation, too, to love his people, his social body, the body of Christ, so much that we would live sacrificially for one another. Hey, what does the master say? Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Does that characterize our relationship with the body of Christ, the church? Are we willing to stake everything on this story and on this people? Because that's what baptism calls us into. And it's the power that we're given in baptism. That's what this grace is for. Ulrich Kleiner, Catholic theologian, says this, when you are baptized into the Christian faith, you encounter a God who invites you on a great adventure that will change your life and who dares you to attempt great things. In the words of Mr. Beaver from the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, he's not safe, but he is good. As we celebrate this service of baptism this morning, Church of God, remember your baptism. Remember that it is comforting and it is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. But there is no other safe place to fall. He is safe. He is not safe, but he is good. Do not take this great gift of grace for granted, but instead let yourself be caught up into this great story which preceded you and which will go on into eternity. Know that God has given you a small but critical part to play in this story and be bowled over again by the privilege that you bear as his baptized body.
Amen.